We are recording with Mr. Howard Bloom on Friday, August 11th, 2023 at 6.10 p.m. Eastern Time. And I was just bitching to Howard about uh, anxiety attacks and panic attacks and going to the ER and therapy and how it's uh, artificially aging me much faster than I should be. And Howard, as he is an expert in most things, also has wisdom on this. So, Howard, let's jump right into it. The outer self versus the inner self. Well, what I was concerned about, this is about a month ago, um, when we were supposed to be talking, was you were saying, well, let's not do the interview tonight. Um, I would be completely boring. Uh, I wouldn't challenge you at all. Um, and it reminded me of my days. Remember, in 1988, when I was at the height of my career in the music industry, representing Prince and Michael Jackson and Bob Marley and people like that, um, all of a sudden I came down with this mystery illness. And um, I was stuck for the next 15 years in bed. And now one of the things I became extremely sensitive to is the fact that when you've been in a bedroom for a long time, the mere thought of leaving that bedroom, assuming you're capable of it. For most of that time, I wasn't capable of it. But assuming that you're capable of it, the mere thought is treacherous. Your mind comes up with every single ache and ailment that it has registered that day and comes up with every single excuse of how you could get sick and how you could die and how all kinds of terrible things could happen to you if you did this event, whatever it is, outside of your bedroom. And um, so over the course of those 15 years, I, I generated a theory of the interior self and the exterior self. And the interior self, you wake up in the morning. The first thing you do before you're even aware of doing anything is your mind goes through a body check. It looks for every symptom you could possibly have. And if you let it go, it'll convince itself that you're the sickest motherfucker on the face of the earth. <laughs> and there's no way you should be crawling off that mattress um, today. And that's because you have two parallel nervous systems. Um, one is called the sympathetic nervous system and the other one is called the parasympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is also known as the autonomous nervous system, meaning it operates on its own. Um, and it takes care of making sure your heart is beating correctly and making sure you're breathing and a whole bunch of things you don't even know your brain has anything to do with. Um, but it is a, a maintenance oriented uh, nervous system. So that's why your brain goes through that body check first thing in the morning checking off every single one of your symptoms it's checking for things that it could do something about um but you also have the sympathetic nervous system the sympathetic nervous system is for engaging with the outside world for example if you see, if you're a wolf and you see a threat coming at you your sympathetic nervous system will shunt the blood away you have five times as many capillaries, five times as much capillary capacity in your body as you have the blood to fill it. Why? Because it provides you with flexibility. Um, when you have just eaten a big meal, the capillaries in your gut open up so that the blood can be shunted to your gut to take care of the problem of digesting all of that food. Well, where does that blood come from? It comes from your muscles. It comes from your brain, it makes you lethargic, it gives you brain fog. But then when you see a threat coming, all of a sudden, the capillary system in your gut shuts down. And the capillary system in your muscles and your eyes and your brain um, get, get the blood. Um, it's concentrated in them so that you're ready to take on the outside world. Well, there's, there's a problem with the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The, the parasympathetic nervous system takes care of a whole mess of functions without which you cannot live. Um, but it's depressive. 
and the sympathetic nervous system is antidepressive. So what I do in the morning, look, I started when I hit roughly the age of 70 or 68 or something like that. Um, I realized that every morning, in addition to this complete body check that filled me up with a sense of being so sick, there's no way I should ever be anywhere but the mattress. Um, the there was I had this strong sense that nobody in the world wants me. Nobody in the world needs me. Uh, I'm a, a total excrescence on the face of the planet. I'm a piece of shit on the face of the planet. And I might as well go and die. Um, so plus, on top of that, I had all of our society's preconceptions about age. So my body, when it checked out all of its little symptoms, put them together and came to the conclusion, hey, you're getting old, you're on your way to death, you're on your way to the grave. So at one point I had a new girlfriend and I noticed that my pectoral muscles were sagging and I didn't like the look of it. And I thought, okay, I'll do 15 push-ups if I can manage that many, just to make sure that I stop sagging. Um, so I did 15 push-ups and then I did 25 push-ups and then I did 90 push-ups, which is the maximum I'd ever reached when I was 19 years old. And then I did 125 push-ups. And, and then uh, I had a group of bodybuilders who were following me on Facebook. And they said, man, you're up to 125. You're going to be up to 400 soon. And of course, there's no way to believe that. That's ridiculous. And then I got to 400. And so first thing in the morning that I did, well, I went to the bathroom, of course, so that I wouldn't have an exploding bladder. Uh, and once that was finished, I got down on the floor of the bedroom and I did all these push-ups. Now I'm doing, I'm 80 years old now. I'm doing 1,250 of these things um, in the morning. Now, what does that do aside from exercise for the body? That's my body saying, fuck you to the old man in my soul. That's my body saying, screw you to the parasympathetic nervous system and its habit of accumulating every possible thing that could possibly be wrong with me and convincing me that I'm only an inch and a half away from the grave. Um, I can't believe that after my body has done 1,250 yeah. push-ups. I can't believe the all of the stereotypes about aging after I've done that. Uh, it just blows everything else away. Plus, it pulls me out of my parasympathetic nervous self, nervous system self, um, the interior self, and it pulls me to the surface to the exterior self, the sympathetic nervous system self that's geared to the outside world. Then, about four years ago, um, oh, and by the way, this in interior um, parasympathetic nervous system um, can get you so frightened that you convince yourself you can't go outdoors. Um, you see every conceivable disadvantage to being out there. And as silly as it sounds, you can't get yourself to go out there without a great deal of push. But once you engage your sympathetic nervous system, you are home free. I mean, not only do I do these 1,250, okay, so it turns out they're not push-ups. Um, when they were making a film about me uh, a few years ago, um, The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom, the filmmakers came out to shoot me doing my push-ups twice. And then the producer of the film and director came to me and said, well, look, we're very embarrassed to admit this to you, but what you're doing in the morning, those aren't push-ups. So I got my gorgeous Asian house guest to come in at eight o'clock in the morning with her iPhone and to shoot me, to, to sit on floor level and shoot me on my own level doing these things. Cause I swore my nose was coming so close to the floorboards that I was in danger of smashing it. Um, and I looked at the footage she took and sure enough, they weren't push-ups. What the hell were they? Well, nothing I'd ever seen before. My, your body invents things without telling you. Hmm. Your body is remarkably creative at coming up with its own solutions to things. So it had invented this variation of the push-up where I vibrate in midair. Um, and my arms don't seem to bend. It's all done with some other torque. Um, nonetheless, it's a way of getting out of the interior self and into the exterior self. Um, 
But this is not to say I'm immune from this stuff. Um, about eight months ago, a year ago, it was the end of the COVID thing. And we'd all been locked up indoors for two and a half years. And uh, Joan Jett was doing a concert in Connecticut. And a guy named Soho Johnny, um, who has his own television show, I don't know where it appears, um, and who, who's taken a liking to me, invited me to come out to the show with him. So I, and, and I hadn't seen, you know, Joan and her manager, Kenny Laguna, are like family to me. When I came down with my illness, they tried to save me. They and John Mellencamp all tried to save me. These are people I am dearly, I dearly love. And yet I came down with 150 health excuses um, for not going to the Joan Jack concert the day I was committed to go. And my girlfriend got on my case and she said, no, this is Joan Jett. You haven't seen her in years. She is precious to you. You have no choice. You have to go to this concert. And it was only through her pushing and shoving that I ended up at the concert. And thank God she pushed and shoved me. Because once I got out of my fucking bedroom um, and engaged with the outside world, hey, I was soaring. I was flying. I was operating on my exterior self, not my interior self. I was operating on my sympathetic self. Um, and it was all soaring from there. So you know that my routine now, well, you know that I sleep in two different batches a day. Uh, I go to sleep at four in the morning. I wake up at eight o'clock. Uh, I do my work with my assistant and my bathing and my shaving and all my exercises and everything, uh, all my pill taking because um, I'm on 30 different pills. And um, and then I go back to bed at 11 o'clock. And so when I get up in the morning, it's all about briefing my assistant. Then I go to bed. But when I get up at four o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon, it's a whole different thing. First, of course, I have to take my zillions of pills and I have to get dressed. Um, and once I do that, I'm out of this house. I take a three and a half mile walk through Prospect Park, which is one of the most gorgeous parks in the world. Literally, it's the most gorgeous park I've ever seen in the world. And I've been to Moscow and Amsterdam and Kuala Lumpur and Seoul, Korea and all kinds of places. And I've never seen a park like this. So that drags me out of my interior self and into my exterior self. And the scenes of all that greenery, because it's green even in the winter, and that huge open sky, um, like a big hemispheric dome over my head, that stays with me for the rest of the day. And then when I knock off work at 11.15, I go out and take another mile and a half walk uh, to two mile walk. No, it's two and a half mile walk in Prospect Park. Again, this time it used to be stars. There's so much light pollution now um, that there are barely any stars. A good night for stars is five stars. Nonetheless, looking up at the clouds and the sky and the tree line and, and, and walking across the meadow and discovering that your feet see, so you don't need to look at the ground mm. at all. You can look straight up into the heavens. Um, and your feet will see over every little hump and lump and rill um, of a meadow. Um, so you need to do things that are going to yank you out of your parasympathetic self, your inner self, your sick man self, and out into your man of action self, your exterior self every day. And if you turn them into a routine, it's called in Bloomian terms, the infrastructure of habit. If you create an infrastructure of habit so that no matter how confused you may be um, in the afternoon, you kick yourself out of the house and take that nap automatically. Your habit takes care of it for you, gets you out of the house without consulting how you feel, because how you feel is going to is going to be the death of you if you pay too much attention to it and gets you out. That's incredible. Plus, there's another thing I discovered just in the last four years or so. 
no, it would have been about six years ago, I started having this pain on the left side of my gut. And it got worse and worse and worse. And I discovered that there was an analgesic that would eliminate the pain. It's work. After a half an hour of work, once I was up and flying in the world of my work, that pain went completely away, which is astonishing because it eventually turned out that that pain was coming from not one, but two kidney stones. Jeez. Um, so it was a serious pain. And yet work was so powerful in its pain-killing ability that it could take me totally out of that pain for five to eight hours at a time. Totally. So that's the power of the interior self versus the exterior self. Work takes you out of yourself. Doing something with, a, with both a purpose and where you know that somebody on the other end of what you're doing wants what you're doing, those are the two essential things you need to have meaningful work in your life. So that's it. That's the interior and the exterior self. Yeah, I've, <clears throat> and it's it's entirely counterintuitive because you you do not want to. You, yeah, you're telling yourself, "I cannot do this. I should not do this. I I shouldn't go to the gym. I shouldn't. I shouldn't go interact." But even on days where I have the worst anxiety, I mean, those are the days where I will get up and I'm like, "We're doing all the chores today. Like, we're going to get gas. I'm going to go get a haircut. I'm going to go." And my body's like, what the fuck are you? No, of all days, why now? And right. it, without failure, I always finish the day completely, like, naturally sedated. I feel completely fine. It's exposure therapy. Nothing bad happened. But if you stay in your little cocoon, it, it, it's kind of like a seesaw. There is, there's almost no middle ground. You're either going one way or the other. Right. And it's, it's, it's very painful to start. And I mean, and it happens to me all the time. You know, as soon as the podcast will start, as soon as I start recording, it it completely, I, I feel like I, I blossom open and it's the right. last thing I want to do, but it's really the only thing that works. And it's, and that's why a few weeks ago when you wanted to cancel because you said the, the interview would be boring to me because you had nothing to say. Um, I was trying to tell you about this, to tell you, kick yourself the fuck out of the interior self. Hmm. make yourself do something hmm. and you'll discover that you have a lot more to say than you knew you had to say. Hmm. How do you feel with, how do you deal with it in terms of anxiety? Cause like depression, I'm, I have a much greater grasp on. I, I, I feel like I can, I can kill that pretty well. Anxiety is the one that's still very intimidating. Well, okay. I eventually came to the conclusion after, you know, laying there for 15 years it probably took me about 10 years of laying there to come to the conclusion that you have a stress handling system in your body. I've probably told you about it on previous interviews. And it works on a Sherringtonian principle. Sherrington was a neurologist in the 1800s who realized that some aspects of your nervous system work like the tachometer in your car. They work with a stimulator which can drive the tachometer over into the red zone and an inhibitor, which if it, if it were allowed to totally take over the system would take you totally into the green zone. Um, and because they're in balance most of the time, they're in the middle, they're standing upright. Um, but due to an illness like chronic fatigue syndrome, which is what I had, you can have a permanent imbalance where the uh, GABA system, which is the inhibitor, is too little. You just don't have enough of it. And so the, the, uh, the, the meter, it, driven by its stimulator, which is called glutamate, um, can be in the red zone all the time and can be tripped even farther into the red zone, if you can believe that, by, well, in my case, I realized I couldn't watch television shows because television shows are based on an Aristotelian plot structure. And that plot structure is introduction of characters, introduction of the dilemma, development of the dilemma, crisis. Crisis, are you kidding me? 
even if it were Golden Girls, which is a show so pablum that it's ridiculous. You can't get more pablum than Golden Girls, more harmless than Golden Girls. But when the crisis came, it threw me into a panic attack. And that panic attack could take me, could set me back two months in my recovery of strength, which was minimal because I still wasn't able to get out of the bedroom. Um, and I'd have to start all over again from where I was two months ago. Um, and so I realized the first thing that was effective for me was Valium. And I could take that about the same time that I discovered there was a cover story in the Journal of American Medicine um, saying that if you've got a patient with a chronic condition, you can give that patient what technically is an overdose of a drug, and all you'll do is return him or her to normal. Hmm. And I discovered I could take up to 27 Valium. And it would just make me a little bit more normal. Jeez. Um, and, and, um, and then um, I and, uh, you know, my, when my, my wife managed to convince, okay, the irony of being a chronic fatigue syndrome doctor is that there were chronic fatigue syndrome doctors, specialists in chronic fatigue syndrome, but they'd only see you if you came to their office. Now, Tommy, do you see anything wrong with that picture when you're when you're laying on your mattress like a scab um, or a tattoo? Um, so I couldn't see a chronic fatigue syndrome doctor because I couldn't get out of my bedroom. So my wife convinced one chronic fatigue syndrome doctor that when he's coming out here to Brooklyn for a party um, with his fiance, that he should drop in and see me. So he did bless his soul. And he helped save me um, over the course of the next God knows how many years. And the most important thing he did was not any drug he prescribed. It was writing out an email address on a little scrap of paper, handing me the scrap of paper and saying, contact this person. She is another patient of mine. She's in Texas. And I think you two should meet. Meet, of course, that means meet online. Mm -hmm. um, the internet, by the way, was still new at that time. There were no, there was no World Wide Web. There were no web browsers, but it was a good place for email. Well, she and I heard about this new treatment with something called oxytocin. And I, Tommy, I don't know why this is true. We've been over this in other areas. I just have a vibe about certain things and it sounded to me like something that could be useful so she checked out the protocol with the doctor who had invented the protocol and i started taking it and it started helping me now when i started to to think through this idea of the stress handling system with its balance between a stress or an, a stressor and an inhibitor a stimulant and an inhibitor um i did some research and sure enough, there turned out to be a system like this in the nervous system. It was the glutamate versus um, GABA system. Um, and oh, and then I forgot, we, we checked out another thing that felt like it might be useful to me, gabapentin. And I added that and that helped me tremendously. So when I was doing my research, what did I discover? First, that there was a glutamate and GABA system, uh, stimulant versus inhibitor system that handles stress in your body. Number two, that Valium goes to the GABA system and beefs up the GABA system. Gabapentin, presumably because of its name, goes to the GABA system and beefs up the GABA system. Um, oxytocin goes to the GABA system and beefs up the GABA system. So gradually over the course of time, my GABA system has improved. It's able to handle things. I no longer have panic attacks. Now, so if this theory is true, and there's lots of evidence that it is, why are you so damned weak with chronic fatigue syndrome that you can barely lift yourself out of the bed to go to the bathroom? that 
Um, I had one friend who came down with a mild case of it and she was shopping one day and she just tried uh, out a jacket and she took it off and went to pick up her coat, her winter coat, and she couldn't. It really, really weakens you. Why? Because your stress system, when your stress system is on high, your body is flooded, flooded with stress hormones, glucocorticoids. And those glucocorticoids say to your system, stop everything else you're doing, like, for example, digesting food. Um, and all that um, energy that we've been storing up in fat, release it now. Um, every bit of glucose in the body, that's your fuel, um, it's sugar, um, release it now, unleash its energy. This is an emergency response. It is a response that evolved to handle a six hour emergency, an emergency that then goes away. But if you've got CFS, the emergency never goes away. And the result is that you are thoroughly depleted by these emergency functions, which have tapped your energy stores out to the nth degree. Um, so you don't have the energy. If one day I couldn't pick up my hands, I had a keyboard um, stretched across me while I was prone on the bed, um, and I couldn't lift my hands to the keyboard. And for five years, why couldn't I talk? I was too weak to move the muscles of my vocal cords. And that's because the stress system was on all the time, burning up everything it could find and leaving nothing for normal function. So it's useful when, in a case like yours to probably follow the same path as mine. Um, Xanax, because they don't like to hand out um, uh, Valium these days. Um, in fact, they can lose their medical license for being suspected of, of handing out too much of it. Um, gabapentin, and um, which is also a pain reliever. I mean, you know, my, look, I had an uncle who was a doctor. And my uncle, the doctor, back in that generation, was a big deal to have even one a person who'd been through graduate school or undergraduate school for that matter in my family. And my uncle, the doctor said, um, once you hit the, the age of 40, um, it's all pains from there. Uh, there'll be new pains coming up all the time and the old ones won't go away. You'll just be accumulating them. I'm 80, I'm twice the age he was talking about. I have very few pains, almost none. And I strongly suspect it's because of the gabapentin. And because when when a serious someone's in serious pain, even though the stuff was licensed by the FDA for convulsions as an anti-convulsant, it's found all kinds of uses since then. And one of them is pain relief when somebody has really serious traumatic um, pain. So I would prescribe, and of course, I'm not a doctor, so you can't trust a word I say, except you can't trust a word your doctor says many of the times, too. But I would say start with whatever Xanax or whatever you can get, um, whatever's in that category these days, and, and try to get gabapentin and start with 200 milligrams a day and slowly but surely uh, by adding 200 milligrams every other day, work your way up to 3,200 milligrams. And my girlfriend's on 900 um, milligrams because I told her she should get it because she has fibromyalgia. So she's in continuous day in, day out pain. Um, and uh, oxytocin is not being made in the United States right now. Um, we haven't had a supply of it in almost a year. Um, I'm scrambling because I tried a little experiment over the last six months or so at about 7.30 at night, which is the beginning of my workday. That's two and a half hours into my workday. It's like 11.30 for a normal human being. I start yawning and nodding out. And so I've been doing everything in my power to stop this. And I stopped taking uh, oxytocin when it was clear that it had become unavailable. 
which meant I had two and a half bottles of it. So I started injecting my oxytocin again. And guess what? I wasn't falling asleep at 7.30 at night anymore. I wasn't nodding out. Now, of course, I use uh, a bunch of other things. Uh, most of the, big, the biggies are guarana, which has caffeine, and um, ginseng. Uh, those are pepper uppers. And um, nonetheless, I'm not having that problem to the extent that I was or any, any, anywhere near it. So the fact that you are having uh, continuous panic attacks to me indicates that that GABA glutamate system, the stress handling system is out of balance and you are in the red zone. Um, probably not as far as I was, or you wouldn't be here doing an interview with me right now. But nonetheless, try those three things. Um, the Valium substitute, the oxytocin and the gabapentin and see, and it takes some time to work, Tommy. You have to just keep doing it. Um, but look at me, you know, I am, I am more cheerful and more energetic than I've been at any previous point in my life. And technically I'm a little fucking old man. Well, screw that. When when did when did your CFS start to start to dissipate? Was it after the introduction of these medications? It was after the introduction of the medications. It took about it felt like five years for them to kick in, and finally, after five years, um, I had a, a a wife, a second wife, who I'd acquired on the internet since the only place I could do anything was the internet, and she was very good at encouraging me to get out of the house and try walking. Now, I had tried that when I had attained a certain amount of strength. I had tried that many times before. But I would walk, for the first day, I would simply walk down one flight of stairs. The next day, two flights of stairs. When I got out of the house, I'd only walk to the house next door and back. Um, and then to two houses up the block, then back. And I was almost never able to get all the way to the corner and the corner was the furthest I could get. And the corner is only 200 yards away. So um, I'm starting to do the arithmetic of my head. Uh, it's 16 doors times uh, 30 or 20, 20 at any rate. So it wasn't that far and I, I couldn't do it. But this time when she encouraged me to get out, I was able to do it. And it was after five years of the um, the treat the, this treatment that I'm recommending. Um, now I I stopped doing the Valium. That was for emergency use only. But I keep a supply of Valium, a small supply here, just in case it should ever happen again. But I got out of bed on October fourth of two thousand and three, and it's almost October fourth of uh 2023 and i am fucking soaring and my body is willing to do 1250 of these whatever they're called um a morning and walk five and a half or six miles a day and on very rare occasions when i'm walking further it'll go seven miles eight miles um who knows um and, and I'm able to be up and thinking um, almost all the time. It was scary when I started yawning and nodding out because I was losing me. Mm. I was losing the clarity that is me mm. um, and becoming, uh, who knows, caretaker of a body that didn't have me in it anymore. And that was that was disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. I've, 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 I mean, I turned 33 on Monday. And I find myself, I can feel that part of my brain that, you know, I've been really having these panic attacks for like a year. I can feel that little bitch part of my brain being like, well, you're, you're, you're getting older now. And then I smack <laughs> myself out of it. And I'm like, I'm 33. What are you talking about? You're getting older. And it's, it's comforting in the immediate because you go, oh, it's not my problem. I'm getting, right. the sun is setting. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. 
but I'm finding more and more. I'm like, no, I'm like, fuck, like something, something is wrong and I can fix it. I'm like, I'm smart enough to fix this. What is going well, on? They, I told the, you know, when I was able to talk again, I used to have salons out here in my bedroom. Um, people like Richard Foreman, the God of avant-garde theater, um, and Carl Zimmer, who's probably the most trusted science writer on the planet right now. He writes for the New York Times. And uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, who's uh, the author of Breaking Open the Head and uh, a leading person in the psychedelic intellectual community. Um, and a bunch of people like that would come out here. And one of the people that would come out here was my mentor in neuroscience, Ted Coons, who helped discover what the hypothalamus does. And Ted, when he heard this theory of the stress handling system, took it so seriously that he got another friend of his at Yale to come out and so I could explain it to them. Um, it, who knows how, you know, it's like my big bagel theory. My big bagel theory predicted dark energy 38 years in advance and explains what dark energy is. Is anybody in physics ever going to take it seriously? No, there's not a stitch of math um, attached to it. There's topology, which is a subfield of mathematics, but you can do topology without math. So um, these two theories that could be of a lot of use um that that's the one disadvantage of my skipping grad school and doing my graduate education for all practical purposes in a field i knew nothing about popular culture um and i needed that more than i could have needed anything that grad school could have given me hmm. that deep dive into popular culture because it taught me about things i've been curious about since the age of 12 and it's still teaching me about those things have you, if you don't mind me asking, when was the last time you had a, a panic attack? Oh, God, it would have been probably uh, the year 2000. So there so, is hope. So I can fix this shit. Well, you know, when I was in, in that state for 15 years, it was totally logical to believe that there's no way in hell I would ever get out of that bedroom in my life. There was certainly no sign of it letting the problem letting up on the horizon. In order to achieve the ability to speak again, I realized, okay, you've got a piggy bank of energy when you wake up in the morning, pennies. And you have to decide how to spend those pennies. And right now, because you are so work-oriented, you try to struggle out of bed and get to your front room and be able to sit at your desk in the in the office chair you've always loved and work there and uh once you were able to get out there for nine hours and then you were only able to get out there for eight hours and now you're only able to get out there for an hour and 15 minutes you're wasting your piggy bank of small change on trying to sit up you idiot it takes energy don't waste your pennies that way. Stay in bed. Get your computer hooked up next to your bed. And when I did that, I regained the ability to speak because the energy wasn't being wasted on trying to sit up in the office setup that I loved so much. And thank God for the internet. The internet saved my life. So when George Nori my host on Coast to Coast, the show I do on 545 radio stations every Wednesday night, um, when George gives me a topic that has anything to do with the internet, I'm for things that other people are against because the internet saved my life. And I know that if I had had the internet when I was 10 years old, I would no longer have been an isolated kid because I would have found other kids like me on the internet. So try to pass a bill that makes it illegal for kids under the age of 13 um, to use social media. And my attitude is, fuck you, you bastard. I'm going to ream. I'm going to uh, I'm going to run a hand grenade up your fucking ass. Um, <laughs> you will not take the, that ability away from me. 
you will not take it away from who I was when I was 10, ever. Um, so the internet, first of all, the internet came about in the 1970s. It was something I, when I started the Howard Bloom organization, um, one of the first things that I did before I even started my office was to make a list of all the things I wanted a computer to do for me. This is in 1976. And then my wife and I went shopping for computers. Now, there were no such things as computer stores, but they had these things called microcomputers or something like that. They were basically tiny little versions of IBMs, but they cost $90,000. So I could not afford that. And that's the equivalent of $270,000 today or something like that. Um, and finally, um, there were the first two computer stores in New York. So my wife and I went to one and it was this dark windowless seventh story warehouse structure. It was, and it was filled with God knows what. And, um, and the, the guy trying to take care of us spoke, look, I'm a geek. I'm fairly good with jargon. But he was speaking a jargon so far beyond me that I didn't understand a word he said. And meanwhile, there was this little flat thing about this high sitting next to me. It was about a foot wide and a foot deep. It was on the top of a table of some sort. And it had a very peculiar logo on it. Tech logos were all about zoomy, tech, robot, shiny, chrome stuff. And this one was a fruit. <laughs> they did not have it hooked up to a keyboard. They did not have it hooked up to a, uh, a display. So there was no way of knowing what it did. So there was my potential salvation. Eight inches from my right hand. And I never knew it. So eventually we heard about these computers called K-Pros. And as computers go, they were very inexpensive. They were about $1,500, which again is $4,500 today. Um, so I got 17 of them. And we were the first office to go totally computerized um, in the business. And then, so, meanwhile, I was hearing about this incredible thing called the internet that prof college professors were able to use. But I, not being a college professor, had no access to them whatsoever. And then a, a bright entrepreneur in the music business worked out a deal with a company that provided internet services and sold internet service to those of us in the music business. That was 1983. Um, that was long before most people had heard of the internet, but it was late as far as I was concerned. College professors have been using this for years. And um, all you could do, as I said, pretty much was use it for email, which was incredibly valuable. Because if Styx was out doing a date, their road manager at the end of the show would meet with the promoter and the promoter would turn over the money. But first they would have to negotiate about the money and um when they finally got the money it was three in the morning and the group's manager to whom the road manager answered was asleep so the road manager couldn't communicate with him about this very vital exchange the exchange of money um and couldn't and, and by the time the the manager was in his office the road manager was asleep well once we all got computers hooked to the internet, all the roadies had compact computers, laptop computers. And when they settled up at three in the morning, they sent all the information to the manager immediately. The manager had it the minute he woke up. It changed the business. And the, the, the internet was such a dark and lonely place that when Peter Gabriel saw I was on the internet, he basically came over and said hello, which Peter in normal life would never do. 
because it's only in that dark and lonely space that finding another human being that you recognized was so rare. Mm. Um, so that's why when I came down with my illness in 1988, I was able to continue working on the book that I was halfway through. That book was The Lucifer Principle. Um, and why, after three years of banging my head up against the office chair and trying to sit, I finally realized I was going to have to make a compromise with my body and lay in the bed, and why I was able to have the world at my fingertips um, with the two computers that I had set up next to the bed and the single monitor. Um, and that saved my life. Tommy, I'm absolutely certain I would have been gone 30 years ago um, if it weren't for the, the computer and the internet. So never, never fuck with me. Never take my internet away. Even talking about taking TikTok away, which I understand since I read news from China three times a day. Um, I understand how dangerous TikTok is because the government owns everything. No matter how much it's privately owned, the government owns it. And you will be breaking the law if you don't allow everything that you own to be used for military purposes and espionage purposes when the government calls on you. So yes, TikTok is dangerous, but TikTok has out-invented Facebook and it's out-invented um, Google and it's, it's proven an ability to do something very special for people. And, and the bottom line is, yeah, it's dangerous as all hell, but don't take it away from kids. They need it to grow up on. They need it to grow up so they can be humans very different than the humans you and I are. Um, because we are what our technologies made us in and the end. Look at you and me doing the Zoom call right now. In, in one way, you could almost imagine that the Internet or <clears throat> personal computers are those excess capillaries. Right. And it, yeah. al it allows you flexibility. A very good way to look at it. A very good way to look at it. And look how profoundly impossible things were in Hawaii um, over the course of the last 24 or 32 hours because the firestorm um, that took that city first took its cell towers um, and no one had communication. There was no way to warn people to get out of their homes. There was no way for people wandering in the street who were trying to holler at every house they could pass to try to say, get out, get out, get out. Um, there was no way for people to see those flames the way that you and I have seen them on our laptops and on our TV screens. No way. And there was no way to know who might be trapped who might still be alive remember the earthquakes in turkey people were who were who were under tons of rubble were able to contact their relatives by cell phone for as long as their batteries lasted and let their relatives know approximately where they were um that was not possible in this fire and uh, so there were 53 deaths the last time I looked, but it's going to be 116 minimum um, because many people, you know, they're surrounded by walls and their their windows give them a limited view of the street and they couldn't see up the street mm -hmm. um, at 90 degree angle from their home where the flames were 120 feet high and were consuming everything in sight. They didn't know those flames we're there and during being burned to death in your home has got to be one of the most painful ways to go that humanity can imagine but that's what it's like when you take out our technologies and someday when there is a real serious war the enemy is going to try to deprive us of all of our technologies with let's say an emp an electromagnetic pulse device setting off a nuclear weapon over the United States high above us that sends a wave of uh, electromagnetism that wipes out 
every electronic device you've got, including the electronic devices. There are now roughly 138 computers running your car for you. Wipes out everything, even the spark plugs in your car. So you can't get away. You can't get food. Your city is going to starve. And that's just one simple EMP. And guess who has the ability to do that right now, thanks to its new missiles and its relatively new nukes, the North Koreans. So, I was going to say that's a as we come off at seven o'clock. I was going to say that's a that's a cheery ending to wrap up on. Well, is... all of our missile defenses are clustered around the North Pole mm -hmm. um, to intercept missiles or planes coming from Russia, but nobody has got missile detection systems at the South Pole. So if North Korea wanted, it could launch one of its ICBMs over the South Pole and hit us with an EMP and wipe out everything we know as, as essential to us as our fingers, our eyes, and our tongues. Jesus. That might be a, a cool topic for the next show, is, uh, <laughs> is, the, is the vulnerability of all these. Right. Well, I have to start really focusing on my book, the new book, mm -hmm. um, which is um, the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. I have to, I've given myself a deadline of September, whatever the last day is, 30th, 31st. Um, and I need all the time I can get. So I sh we should not do an interview until after I have finished okay. that damn book. Okay. So That's fair enough. So you should send me off to do the damn book right now. Okay. And, and I want so get find a doctor you can trust and who is willing to go along with these crazy prescriptions and try the three things that I just mentioned. And if a doctor says, I, I can't give you Valium, say, well, what can you give me in that family? Hmm. I will. I, I'm seeing a doctor later this month. I will. I might I might even send him this this video. Um yeah, I'll think about that. Howard, I appreciate your I appreciate your input and I appreciate your care for uh for not just taking the rescheduling but telling me we should talk about this and your own experiences with anxiety and kind of crippling solitude because that that definitely opened me up to to hearing this out and I think, you know, you're you're double my age plus 14. So you know, you've lived my you've lived my life and then some, and um, your input and your experiences do mean a lot to me. So I, I genuinely mean it when I say thank you, Howard. Well, so may you do well over the next two months or so. Yes, sir. And then I'll and then I'll see you in October. Yes, sir. And wish me wish me luck in finishing the book. Godspeed and good <laughs> luck in finishing your book. I'll make a note of it now to send you an email on October first. Okay, and, terrific. All right. Well, have a good night. Be well, be better. Thank you. Thank you so much, Howard. As always, I love you. Guys, please go into the description. Go check him out. Go grab his books. Go follow him on social media. Go to his website. All that good shit. Howard, thank you so much. Have a good night. Thank you, sir. You as well. Guys, thank you for Recording watching. Stopped. Everyone take care. Peace.